welcome to episode 106 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. We are coming to you from the Lakeside Building. We are really here together, in the Together in the Lakeside Building. And we've got a surprise guest who we'll get to in a second. But first, Julie, we've got some news. Yeah, UConn is launching a professional science master's in genetic counseling beginning next fall, the first such program at a New England public university. According to program director Maria Gior, the available jobs for genetic counselors have doubled since 2010. UConn has long offered certificates in clinical genetics and clinical communication, but for a genetic counselor to obtain licensing, they need a master's from an accredited program, and this program has achieved accreditation. The two-year program aims to increase access to genetic counseling careers for historically underrepresented populations, and students will gain hands-on experience in clinical rotations that start right as the program starts, and will get to do some research projects as well. Very nice. And I will put in a little notice if you go to UConn today. You can read about that, but you can also read that UConn Health was the first hospital in the country to administer a dose of a new medication that's for a treatment of a particularly aggressive form of cancer. Oh, so uh, there's a great story about how it came to be that UConn Health is the first, and um, that's it's great news because apparently the, the medication shows real promise. That's and, very exciting. Yeah, very nice. Cool. All right. Now, first guest is a, a very, very interesting and accomplished person here at UConn. So why don't we jump right into it? Our guest this week became Dean of the UConn School of Law on July 31st, 2020. She came to UConn from the University of South Carolina School of Law, where she taught for 13 years and served as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs from 2018 onward. Before that, she taught at the Thurgood Marshall School of Law and practiced employee benefits law at Bracewell LLP in Houston. She teaches in the fields of contracts, commercial law, consumer law, and race, class, and education. Her scholarship, which has been published in numerous law review journals and many other publications, focuses on education law and policy, and she's especially interested in the availability of equitable educational opportunities for students of color and those from economically challenged backgrounds. Currently, she serves on the Boys and Girls Clubs of Hartford Board of Trustees and the Lawyers Collaborative for Diversity Board of Directors, and the Hartford Business Journal included her on its 2022 Power 50 list of influential leaders in the greater Hartford area. We are thrilled to have a chance to speak with her and benefit from her expertise. And so welcome to UConn 360, Dean Ebony Nelson. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Tom and Julie. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So a lot of really exciting topics we want to cover today, but First, I was obviously reading up on you, and you've really been committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts throughout your career, and you took the helm at UConn Law kind of right in the midst of everything in the wake of the George Floyd murder with a lot of nationwide reckoning with injustice and inequities in the criminal justice system. So, of course, we continue to grapple with this today, and I wanted to start with you telling us a little bit about some of the efforts that are going on at the law school to make a difference in this area, particularly if you can tell us a little bit about the Center on Community Safety, Policing, and Inequality. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Julie. You're right. It was definitely a time where there was this racial and social justice reckoning, and it really created an opportunity for everyone to really reflect and think about ways in which we can move our society and really our country and our world forward 
in terms of having greater equity and greater justice. And of course, here at UConn Law, the issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and what I think is even more important than those three things brought together, which is belonging, which is making sure that everyone who is a part of our community feels as if their voice and their perspective is valued and that their identities are valued and their contributions are valued such that they really feel like they belong here. And so we have taken very intentional efforts to make sure that we are furthering those goals. So one thing that we did do is we created, for instance, the Constance Belton Green Diversity Fund. That was really the first fund of its kind here at the law school that can broadly support diversity as well as a social justice initiatives. And that incorporates everything from scholarships for students from diverse backgrounds, first-generation students, students who have a commitment to racial and social justice, to fellowships for students who may have unpaid opportunities in the summer to work for agencies and governmental entities and nonprofits that are advancing these important issues that we're able to provide summer stipends for them, but then also for our faculty as well, for our faculty who are researching and teaching in these areas ways to support their scholarship and their teaching. And so we're very fortunate and we're very grateful for the generous contributions that so many alumni and friends have made to that fund to help further those goals. Another thing that we did do, as you mentioned, we created a new center on community safety, policing, and inequality. And that center was really created to have this interdisciplinary approach and lens through which to look at how do we help communities flourish? We know that law enforcement and policing is one way in which we help communities flourish and we help communities be safe, but we know that there is a host of other types of disparities, whether that's in health and availability of healthcare, educational opportunities, mental wellness and mental health opportunities. There's a host of different ways in which we can help communities flourish. And so we're excited. We have been in partnership with with the Department of Public Policy at UConn, with the School of Social Work at UConn, to take this very broad view of ways to help communities flourish and looking at critical issues, both that have to do with policing, but also has to do with issues beyond that, such as education and having law enforcement, for instance, in schools and colleges and in elementary and middle schools and kind of that K through 12. So again, a lot of great work being done through that center to help move these issues forward. That's great, especially the interdisciplinary collaboration, because I know in higher education that people can get siloed often, and, and uh, it's fantastic to hear that uh, you're taking these steps to make sure that doesn't happen with, with UConn Law. Absolutely. And of course, that's one of the advantages of being at a research one institution such as UConn, that we have such fabulous scholars and researchers and community members that are engaged with these issues and come at them from very different but yet related disciplines. And so to be able to be in conversation and in collaboration and partnership is a wonderful advantage in really helping to move these issues forward. My my, my sister-in-law teaches on the faculty of a different law school. I won't say which one because I don't want to get her in trouble, but she has told me on more than one occasion, she's envious of all the clinics that UConn Law offers. And that's something that she thinks the school where she teaches 
doesn't offer enough of and that students really benefit from that experience. Could you talk about the, some of the clinics and, and how that experience can help prepare the law students? Absolutely. We are so very proud of our clinical offerings and our experiential educational offerings. We really were on the forefront of providing clinical education before a lot of other law schools started doing that. And one of the great benefits of clinical education is you're giving students that real world experience to put what they have learned in the classroom into practice for the benefit of the community. And so you have this great benefit of not only helping your students to grow and to learn, but you're also giving back to the community through the representation that those students as well as clinical faculty are engaged in. And when I think of us as the state's public flagship law school, and in reality, when I think of UConn, of course, as the state's public flagship university, one of the great joys and responsibilities and opportunities we have is to make sure that we're giving back to the community. And so we're very excited, for instance, just this past semester, we established a new housing and eviction defense clinic through a very generous grant from HUD. And with that funding, we're able to have a director, associate director, students who are working as fellows with the clinic, and then, of course, students who are enrolled in the clinic who are learning how to represent tenants, the large group of whom are not represented in eviction cases. And we know that they need assistance in navigating those types of cases and those types of circumstances. So not only are we providing that direct representation to benefit the community and really the state of Connecticut, but we are also developing the future attorneys that will go on and do this type of incredibly rewarding and necessary work, either as their full-time profession as an attorney, or even if they have a different route as an attorney, they will have the background to be able to take these cases on a pro bono basis. So we are really educating the future generation of attorneys and advocates. And that is what our clinical offerings do. We also have an asylum and human rights clinic that has historically been of great benefit to help those who are seeking asylum from horrific situations in their home countries and helping them navigate through that asylum process and through the immigration process. And not only are you developing student skill set in that, but you're developing their confidence. You're developing their interpersonal skills. You're developing their sense of service through this incredibly meaningful work. So we're extremely proud of all of our clinics, our partnerships with organizations like Connecticut Fair Housing, Disability Rights Connecticut, other organizations in the community through which we provide these clinical opportunities for our students. That's fantastic. It's great to hear about all those new clinics, particularly. And I was wondering, since the law school celebrated its centennial a couple years ago, now we're forging into the second century of UConn Law. What are some other things you see on the horizon? What's kind of your vision for, I guess, the next hundred years? Absolutely. Well, my vision for the next hundred years of Utah law 
is really to continue to provide even more life transformative opportunities and experiences for our students. You know, we would love to offer even more clinical and experiential educational offerings, making sure that our curriculum is providing the educational preparation for students for not just the legal practice of today, but also the legal practice of tomorrow. And again, we see issues going on with AI. We see issues going on with cybersecurity. We see issues going on with governance and risk management that touches pretty much every area of industry and business and the law. So making sure that we're offering courses in areas such as that, as well as continuing to, you know, develop our curriculum and our students' knowledge about, you know, other types of issues that are affecting the law and the way the law is affecting communities. Because again, we know that the law impacts different communities in different ways. And so as we are providing these life transformative opportunities, as we are providing this cutting edge education, we are also making sure that we are preparing our students to realize the role that they will play as advocates and as leaders and as, you know, perhaps one day legislatures to make sure that they're looking at these laws and the way it impacts different communities in different ways. And so we just want to continue with doing that. We want to continue to be not just situated in Hartford or in Connecticut, but be of Hartford and of Connecticut. So I'm very proud. We have a new pro bono director who is really doing a wonderful job in helping the law school to be even more engaged with the community and helping to connect our students with pro bono opportunities and community service opportunities. So we will continue to grow in that area as well. And, and we'll also continue to grow with the types of education that we provide. So when we think of ourselves as a law school and as a law faculty, yes, we're here to create and to help educate the future generation of attorneys. But we actually do more than that. We're really here to teach people about the law. And when we think about ourselves in that broader context of teaching people about the law, well, there are professionals out there whose work, even though they may not have a legal background, their work touches on the law. So we want to be sure that we're providing professional certificate opportunities, executive leadership opportunities, so that we can help those employees and those members of our community whose work touches the law, but yet they don't maybe wish to go on to have a three-year law school experience, but they would like to hear and learn about ways in which the law impacts their work to further their own education in that way. So I see us also moving in that space as well, particularly when we think again about governance, risk management, and those kinds of areas that compliance that is so incredibly important to those professionals in our state and beyond. As I mentioned in the introduction, one of the areas of your scholarship has been the availability of opportunity for students of color and from economically challenged backgrounds. Right now, there are two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court that could effectively end affirmative action in higher education. And court watchers seem to be saying that based on the makeup of the court, that that's a likely outcome. So I wanted to, to get your sense of, of if that does happen, what would it mean for higher education and sort of what could some responses be? Absolutely. And I thank you for asking that, Tom, because I think it is such an incredibly important issue that all of us should be concerned about. It is 
as we all know, education and the access to educational opportunities can be life transformative and has, in fact, been life transformative for millions of people. And we know that the schoolhouse door has not always been open to everyone, particularly those students who are coming from diverse backgrounds. And we know that through race-conscious affirmative action, that has been a very valuable tool by which to diversify higher education institutions, which is a benefit for all. So many times people think, oh, you're only benefiting those students, you know, for which, you know, race or socioeconomic status or anything like that was a consideration. But in fact, Studies show that having a diverse educational environment is a benefit to everyone. It helps with our own thinking, our own way of looking at problem solving, our own way of considering experiences that may be different and perspectives that may be different from our own, which enriches our own thinking and our own approach to issues. And so it is really important that those schoolhouse doors continue to be open. We know that we live and work in a multicultural society and in a global world. And we want to make sure that regardless of what the Supreme Court decides this summer, we anticipate the decision coming out later this summer. They usually wait until the end of the term before they release such impactful decisions. It's important that we continue to have avenues that we are still having a very robust and very highly diverse student body. And so I think in our recruitment of students, it's important that we are looking very broadly as to where we are approaching different colleges and in different areas as far as our recruitment of students and perhaps looking at different schools such as historically black colleges and universities, minority serving institutions to make sure that we are letting them know about us and the great education that we provide. That's one thing that schools can do is, is you know, think broader about their recruitment. And it's also important to think about the mission of your school. You know, if the mission of your school is to prepare students to be successful in a multicultural world and in a global society, well, having a multicultural and having a very diverse student body is a way to do that. And so asking students on their application, what is their thinking or what's their experiences, what's been their backgrounds in being in conversation conversation with people from diverse backgrounds, what's been their experiences that has really helped develop them into who they are today. And those experiences in the communities in which they lived, in which their friends and family have lived, and those kinds of things also inform what type of student they will be and what they will bring to those classroom discussions. So perhaps, you know, admissions starts asking about things like that, asking students to talk about some of those experiences that have developed a sense in them about the importance of social justice or the importance of racial equity or what have you. As we look at the holistic view of what a student will bring to an educational institution. And so I think keeping it front of mind, having intentionality behind it, I think that's going to be necessary as we think of measures to make sure that we do not lose the ground that we have made and the advances we have made in helping our educational institutions be open to students from all backgrounds and all identities.
staying on the topic of both the Supreme Court and the importance of diverse perspectives, you had spoken on some news programs, at least locally, about the appointment of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson Mm -hmm. about six months ago now. And she's the first Black woman and the first federal public defender to serve on the Supreme Court. So I wanted to ask if you could talk a little bit about the importance of having diverse perspectives like hers and how that impacts how the court handles cases, considering, you know, historically, it's been a very white court and mostly lots of former prosecutors, not defenders. Right. Absolutely. And I think, again, the perspectives in which we bring to the contemplation of issues and the consideration of issues. So even in the oral arguments this term, even in the oral arguments on the affirmative action cases, you see the way in which Justice Kontanji Brown-Jackson, the way in which she approaches the questions, the views that she brings to that is informed by the experiences that she has had. And that's the case, again, for all of us. We all bring those perspectives and view certain issues through a certain lens. And when we have a multitude of those lenses through which we are viewing a problem, it makes for a more well-rounded and a more robust consideration of the most important issues of the day. And so when you think about the importance of diversity on the bench, and again, that's not just diversity of identity, but diversity of thought is also incredibly important. Again, the decision-making process improves when you have that. And I must also say that representation matters. And for anyone that believes that representation does not matter, that's usually because they're already very well represented. But for people like myself, for, for people like my daughter, for people, you know, who, again, have historically not been represented in these very important positions of authority, of leadership, of influence in our country, it does make us think, oh, we can achieve that one day also. It is hard to be what you can't see. And so when we have that representation, it instills confidence, it instills inspiration in so many people, right, regardless of their backgrounds, into what they could achieve. Also on the subject of the court, and I apologize, as the dean of a law school, you're probably tired of people asking you about the Supreme Court, but... It's, it's quite all right. It's, it's, a, it's an important body. It's a pretty life, hot right? topic yeah, these exactly. days. Yeah. I, I, I was curious about your your sense of the growing conviction uh, in the country that the court is becoming essentially a political body like any other. What does that do for the court? What does that do for the federal bench or even, you know, teaching constitutional law? First of all, is it correct? And second of all, if so, what does that mean? I think, unfortunately, it probably is correct. I think, you know, when you look at some of the polls and when you look at some of the surveys as to the public opinion of the court, it's really unfortunate, I feel. That is the word that most comes to mind when I think about this perception, because our courts, they are courts of the people. They are courts that are there to make sure that everyone is getting a fair adjudication of their claims. And the Supreme Court in particular, it is to be above the politics. You know, you can have politics in one branch, you can have politics in another branch, but that third branch <laughs> is supposed to be above that and, and really not caught up in that. And while I believe the justices and the judges who are part of our judicial system would in no way feel that 
themselves that they are being political or they are acting in that way, perception matters. Perception matters. And, you know, while there can be obviously differences of opinion about cases and about the Constitution and about how the laws of the land apply in certain situations, and we can all agree to disagree about that as long as there's agreement that it's really based off of one's interpretation of the law and not one's interpretation or a stronghold of politics. And I'm not saying that that is what any court decision has done, but unfortunately, that is the perception that some hold with regards to particularly the Supreme Court right now. And so when we see the overturning of precedent, cases that have stood for decades that seems to change course once there's a change in the court, that is disturbing for a lot of people. But it's important to that we teach our students that, of course, that can and does happen and that, you know, the interpretation of the law is exactly that, an interpretation. And so when we make arguments, you know, as advocates, as attorneys, we're asking for one interpretation versus the other. So it's important that regardless of the decisions that the Supreme Court may make, we're continue to instill that skill set into our students. But we also, it's important to think about other avenues of advocacy, right? That just because you may not get the outcome you want from a judicial opinion, that doesn't mean that there are not other avenues to protect certain rights and to advocate for certain outcomes in another sphere. So it's important that, again, we're taking that very well-rounded view of how we educate our students and how they can use this incredible legal education that they're getting to advocate for those causes that they feel are important. Well, Dean Nelson, you've given our listeners so much to think about. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know how busy you are. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for everything you're doing for UConn. Well, thank you so much. And I echo the thanks for everything you all are doing for UConn as well. It was a pleasure and an honor to be with you all today. Thank you so much. Go Huskies. All right. That was great. <laughs> hey y'all, it's Julie. I just wanted to point out here that we are not laughing about Dean Nelson's interview. We're laughing about us pretending that we just listened to the interview in the studio. Just wanted to clarify that. Enjoy the rest. Some things don't change. No. <laughs> it's, 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 you probably recognize that voice, folks. Uh, the band is back together. That is uh, the one and only Ken Best is joining us. In the studio. In the studio. for the As Ken pointed out, the first time the three of us have been in a room together since March. March 2020. That's, ama- that's incredible. And, uh, and we're in different places, or at least I know. Tom and I are. We swapped we're in places. different that's true. seats, yeah. But, but this is still in front of my microphone. I don't know why that's there. I don't know how that there. happened. I, I don't know either. I can't remember who gave it to us. That was me. I brought that back from Japan. Japan. Oh, okay. yeah. there's, a, there's a purple tag dangling from Ken's microphone for the listener. For the listener, you can't I see did, it. I did think that was interesting when we just had a student we were interviewing in that seat, and I was like, oh, it's weird that we have that on the microphone. I, I, think, I think it's like it's the guest microphone, so that's how. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we've indicated. But it was my microphone. For does, it mean, does it mean anything, that yeah, particular? It was, it, it was, uh, I got it at a, a, like a, a, good luck? a Buddhist temple, and yeah, it's good luck. Cool. Hey. Yeah. Good to have. But we're not here to talk about things I bought in Japan. Um, <laughs> yes, we are. The reason Ken has rejoined us, well, first of all, it's nice to see Ken. But second of all, Ken is going to tell us about history, not Yukon history, music history. Because at Homer Babbage Library, on display are some artifacts from Ken's vast collection 
of memorabilia from the history of rock and roll. And I was cleaning the, cleaning the office up at home. <laughs> there you go. And Ken is the author of a history of rock and roll music called Eight Days a Week. And so we wanted to ask Ken how this exhibition came about and what are some of the things people will see when they come to Homer Babbage Library and poke around. Well, for the longest time, I've been collecting stuff from the time I was in high school and maybe even before that. It's been so long I can't remember. But as a reporter on my first newspaper job, at a time when newspapers really weren't covering a lot of music that way, I I was looking back at some clips recently and we had Rolling Stone magazine as the service providing music reviews (laughs) and album reviews and stuff. But I was working in the middle of New Jersey, 45 minutes from New York City, and Rutgers and other universities had bands coming through, and the Capitol Theater in Passaic was a major stop on rock and roll tours into New York City. It was about a 3,000-seat theater. And so I just started gathering materials as they were coming out. I had subscriptions to Rolling Stone magazine and Billboard magazine, and I didn't throw out a lot of stuff. (laughs) which meant that when I moved, it was always a royal pain. But I referred to the studio once I left Lakeside three three and a half years ago now yeah. as the Wallace Sound Studio and the Mansfield Center branch of UConn Today. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I kind of had it set up that way anyway. There's rows and rows of albums and CDs and mostly a lot of books that I collected. And as I was collecting books, I tried to be smart about it. I didn't buy books just because I thought they were neat. I was thinking in terms of what are good, interesting books that have history materials in them, like encyclopedias that were legitimate encyclopedias of rock and roll, like the kind that Rolling Stone would put out or Harmony books would put out. And so I just kept gathering that. And then as I progressed doing radio down in Bridgeport at WPKN, great. You could call people and say, I'd like to talk to the author of that book, and would you send me a free copy? (laughs) So they would do that, and then I would spend non-commercial time. I could spend an hour with someone, which they would never get from Larry King or somebody who really knew what they were doing. (laughs) (laughs) So I have all this stuff. And having spent enough time in all the museums and display places on campus, the Benton the Contemporary Art Gallery, the Gallery Plaza, and the Jorgensen. They all have very good exhibits throughout the year. I've been around enough exhibits that I think I know how to put something like that together. And so when I spoke with Jean Nelson about it, she said, sure, let's do it. (laughs) Yeah. One of the benefits of working at the university as long as you did. I think it's funny. We're all like – I feel like we're all big music and rock and roll people, but all like in incredibly different ways. <laughs> like we just all well, that's why we work together so lane. well. <laughs> I know. I was just wondering what your favorite things on display are there that you could tell us about. There's a lot of stuff, but I, I because it was just the library, I, I thought books had to play a very important mm-hmm. part. And in every display case, there is some book or several books in, in most instances. The thing that I value the most is a photo that's on the cover of Eight Days a Week. It's known as The Shadow. My late friend Josia, who did all the photos in, in my book, was a very great photographer. As a thank you for getting the book that we did together, he gave me a poster-sized print of The Shadow, which is four amplifiers, Marshall amplifiers, by the way, ripped in a couple of places with a spotlight 
with what is obviously a Fender guitar head at the top of the guitar, fringe hanging down from the sleeves of the jacket, and a big afro. Hmm. There's only one person who that could possibly be. It's Jimi Hendrix Mm -hmm. at Woolsey Hall, where Paul McCartney just spoke not long ago. And that picture has been reproduced around the world and in special magazine supplements of historic rock and roll photos. And because Joe thought that that would be a good thing for the cover of the book and he appreciated what we had and and the way we did the book, he gave me that huge poster. I never really hung it up, got it framed, but I did now. Hmm. There's a purple frame inset and then another frame around it. So when you look at it, there's no question what it is. <laughs> and then the other photos around it are all pictures from the book. Nice. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. And I've, I've been in the library and seen students gathering around the display cases. One thing that I've found is that younger people, you know, and I am a hip young person, don't get me wrong, but uh, <laughs> people even younger than me, they know a lot more about music history. I think maybe the internet makes things present in a way that wasn't possible before. So I've been impressed at people's knowledge and interest in stuff from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Well, in fact, if you look at the WHUS schedule alone and look at the shows that the students are doing, and these are all students of college age between 18 and probably 22, 23, there's a lot of classic rock programming going on Mm -hmm. other than old guys like me and the other (laughs) members of the community that are playing music. So... Clearly, their parents or their grandparents oh playing gosh, a lot of right? stuff, like those car commercials where the kids are saying, oh, I like that song. And then that's what they play for their kids when they're adults and as, they, as the commercial transitions. So I, I think it's there. And music is always evolving. Part of the thing that I try to demonstrate is the technology that changes because there's one case that has the Rolling Stones in every – form of recording that you can have. The, the, the reel-to-reel tape is not the Rolling Stones. It's actually my interview with John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas <laughs> talking about the Monterey International Pop Festival that he put together. But there's the Rolling Stones in vinyl, sticky fingers. There's the Rolling Stones in cassette form, steel wheels, in eight-track mm. Tattoo you. R.I.P. And then the very first introducing England's newest hit makers, the Rolling Stones first album, the CD version that's, that's in the case. Cool. And then underneath that, my boombox with AM, FM radio, <laughs> cassette, and CD capabilities. So I, I tried to take that approach just as I did with when you're looking at the album case, which has – I think there's 19 or 20 album covers. The vinyl is not inside because that's that's not a good thing to do to vinyl. (laughs) But in front of that are chart books from Billboard and things like the Greens directory of song by subject where you can literally look up a word or a phrase or a season or whatever and see the album that a song came from and who recorded it. And then the development of the artwork in album covers. There are a couple of books that I managed to find at some point on the development of the 45 RPM album, the record cover, and then the guy who created mostly classical albums in the late 1940s, because before that you didn't have artwork, and eventually it evolved to where we have Joni Mitchell doing her own covers and Neil Young's wife doing paintings and things like that. So I tried to show that scope, and then when you get to the book 
display case, which is about 35 or 40 books. There is a section called scholarly books that is basically research-based material, including Professor Jeffrey Agbar, the director of the Center for the Study of Popular Music. His book on hip-hop is in there, as well as a social protest book that has Professor Robert Stevens and Mary Ellen Junda, who spoke about the role of blues protest songs in history. It actually opens that book, and their report was delivered at a conference in England a number of years ago. It's probably about five inches thick. That's <laughs> stuff from all over the world. So I try to take that approach. It's a lot of great stuff, and it really kind of covers the waterfront, as Ken is saying. And Ken, how long will people be able to see this stuff on display? Well, the exhibit goes through June 30th. My understanding is that after that, the space is going to be renovated. Yep. It's the Plaza Gallery, right? Yep. In the yep. Homer Babbage. Fantastic. So June 30th, before then, get there. You got time. Rock and rollers of all ages are welcome. And, you know, when you're at the library, stop at the Bookworms Cafe. Have yourself a cup of coffee. <laughs> Why are you plugging Bookworms? I don't know. I just I was thinking, you know. But, but in the meantime, before you get over to the, the, the exhibit, we put together a website presence at the WHUS dot org website for for the radio station where I still do my show. Mm-hmm. And it's listed under the history of rock and roll. And there's actually a picture of one of the exhibit cases there. But within that, once you click on that, there is a full list of the display material in there. And you can then go to stories that I've written, primarily the ones that, that were on UConn today. Chris Steely, I think, I think the Billy Joel one is there, the Woodstock pieces that I've done over the years. And then read those. There's also a section. I managed to find some of the interviews that I did many, many years ago at WPKN. Joan Jett, John Phillips, others, and the stuff that I've been doing at WHUS. So you can listen to the audio of my interviews with folks that are musicians of certain amount of note. That's pretty cool. And then there's a list of all the photos that are there and some of the other information to give you kind of a preview. So it's probably a good idea maybe to even look at it before you go see the exhibit so you know what you're looking at. Although all the display cards are full of information. Absolutely. Sounds like a labor of love, Ken. Good job. Well, it, it keeps me busy. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do next? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should update my book. <laughs> yes, you should. <laughs> it came out in 1992. A lot you has should. happened since A lot then. has happened. <laughs> In rock and roll since then. All right. Well, Ken, I'm, I know this won't be your last visit to us, but it's great seeing you again. And listeners, get yourself to Homer Babbage Library and, and check out this display. In the meantime, people can follow you on TikTok where you're <laughs> – Where he dances He's constantly dancing on TikTok. Yep. No, that's not correct. <laughs> no, we but do know. WHUS, mm-hmm. UConn Sound Alternative, and WHUS.org. All right. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ken. Good to see you guys. 